KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Lano. This is the Henry George Program. Show all about parking, planning, and value capture. Today in the program, we are here to talk about the world of parking, minimum parking requirements, the efforts in Sacramento to reform them, and the equity arguments that somehow this is a bad thing because of value capture. It's a weird story, and who better to break it down than Michael Manville, professor at the UCLA Luskin School. So we dive deep into parking, as well as the weird world where we make rules that we don't really mean to follow, and so on and so forth. But without further ado, let's uh, just get into it. So Michael, uh, thank you so much for making it here on the program. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, we are here to talk about a lot of, uh, you know, I, I think the most interesting stuff in the world of where policy meets politics, which is, you know, parking policy, in particular, the massive controversies about, you know, in particular, AB 1401 in the last year, but I think there's a lot of broader ideological issues here. Uh, I think before we get into that, I, I I think the audience listening, I want to, I probably assume most people are relatively shoop-pilled and don't need to be told too much why minimum parking uh, requirements are counterproductive and generally just uh, very harmful presences that are ubiquitous in our cities. But I mean, if you're giving a, a short pitch, I guess I have a question first. Are you finding a, a shift in time? Are more people like just naturally getting into this? Or am I just in a bubble where I'm just <laughs> hearing more people that are kind of shoot-pilled? No, I, I was funny when you said that uh, just now that you thought most people were shoot-pilled and, and we could talk about other things. It there is a There is an interesting divide, right? In the sense that for a person who's never encountered the work of Don Shoop, the the problems with uh, required parking are far from evident, right? And then you really do have to take a little bit of time to give them that argument. But as I think we'll talk about today, in the in sort of the policy realm and planning realm in California and, and throughout the country now, almost what's I think so interesting about what we'll talk about is that so much of the discussion about parking reform has stopped being about parking. Right. Yeah. It's now about these other things that have become embedded in it. So so I think that we you and I are probably both in a sort of policy slash planning slash academic bubble where, we, yeah, we all understand that the minimum parking requirements are a problem. Um, but a lot of people still have not you know, swallowed Don's medicine yet. And so they, they don't understand. Yeah, I mean, the way it works is it works invisibly. You know, it, it creates this entire environment where you're not supposed to see the undergirding of something that seems natural. And that's why it's so insidious. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, okay. So let's talk about, in particular, maybe the way that this was introduced into poli- you know, politics in the last year, AB 1401. Uh, very broadly, it was a very simple bill which would pre you know it, it would preempt all local jurisdictions saying you cannot have minimum parking requirements is that is that basically correct to say it's that's right uh near near within a certain range of transit stops so uh and it's it was in i mean it was interesting this was kind of the the uh, this came to a massive head i will also just to flash forward right now it is kind of dead it was kind of killed by a pasadino representative it's not quite it's still in that suspense file as i understand and always you can bring it back uh but before it went for assembly vote last year there was a letter and it was brought out uh you know not by who you might expect to oppose this which would be you know oil companies 
you know, car companies uh, or just kind of right wing interest. It was signed by uh, the APA, who later changed their mind, but the rest, as far as I know, didn't. We have public advocates, the Western Center, Law and Poverty, Policy Link, Act LA, Housing California. I can go on and on, choo choo. Uh, and they said from equity grounds, they have to oppose it. So I want you to talk a little bit about what was their argument, why they made it, and you know, kind of what your you know reaction is to to this. Yeah, so I think, and, and, I, and I can give a little bit more background as well. This is a, a sort of longstanding issue with efforts to reform parking. And I think that, as we just mentioned, there is, a, there is this economic case against minimum parking requirements that I, I think for most people is now open and shut. Um, that, that debate is settled. Donald Shoup, uh, my colleague at UCLA and who was also my dissertation advisor, is the, you know, the duke of all things parking. And he, he made that case. Uh, and I would urge any of your listeners, it seems unlikely if we're a Henry George podcast that they're not familiar with it, but if they are not, I mean, uh, uh, Shoup is a, a masterful modern day Georgist who is, who is, I recommend any part of his 800 page book on parking. I have not read the book he put out uh, just uh, a few years ago. Uh, I still mean to check that out, uh, but yeah, he's still, he's still very productive. Very productive. Yeah. And in that book, it, it's a nice follow-up. It's kind of an edited volume that kind of brings people up to speed on developments since uh, the high cost of free parking, which was the original book also. And so, so he's, he has a number of chapters in that, but it's not in the, in the sort of masterpiece book. He, he's written the whole thing. It's not the manifesto. Yeah. Uh, but so to, to take you back to 2011, 10 years ago now, or geez, 11 years ago now, the first attempt at a bill like AB 1401 was brought to, to bear by uh, Nancy Skinner as a representative from the Bay Area. And it was a very similar bill that just said that in certain areas, um, it didn't abolish parking requirements, but it would prevent, it would put a cap on them. And the same thing that you, you just said happened occurred then as well. And it's an interesting, if you read a historian like Peter Norton who's written these great book, a great book about the rise of car culture, but also car law in the United States. He talks about how in the, the teens and 20s, 19-teens, 1920s, automobile manufacturers were huge players in local and state ordinances around uh, regulating cars, how wide streets should be and things like that. And I think if you read it, one thing you that's striking from the modern days, this is not a role. Car companies, they just don't play a role in this um, yeah. anymore, right? I mean, I think that the, the the horse uh with the, their horse has left the barn and, and they're they're just not that concerned about it and so you're much more likely to see when you see opposition to a bill like nancy skinner's 10 years ago laura friedman's this past year it is this one from one angle is quite predictable and we'll talk about all of this i'm sure there are people who just don't like the idea of more density and growth because one of the things that happens when you require parking is you're you put a, a constraint on residential or commercial density, uh, ov often over and above what the zoning would suggest otherwise is allowed, right? So you have people who are just like, I don't want you know a 10 unit apartment building in my neighborhood, let's keep these parking requirements. And, and that's somewhat predictable. Like, you know, we can pejoratively say the NIMBY has come out. Sure. The other thing that, that happens though, uh, is that from the left, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, you get an objection and the objection is based on, and this was true 10 years ago and it was true last year, that if you remove the parking requirement from the development, one thing you are doing is taking away from cities a tool that they used 
to induce the, the, the creation of below market rate subsidized affordable housing. And there's different pathways by which this happens, but the, the main one is that California has a density bonus law. And one component of that density bonus law is that a developer can provide less than less parking than the zoning would otherwise require if they agree to, for instance, set aside 5%, 10%, 15%, et cetera. It depends on a schedule of their development as a, as a below market rate unit. Um, and the, the fear that arises oftentimes amidst some of these groups you mentioned, whether it's the Western Center, whether it's a public council or something like that, is that if you take away the parking requirement, then you take away the inducement. And, and the phrase that gets thrown around is that you are sort of, quote, you're giving away density. It's a giveaway to the developers sure. and not getting anything in return. Um, and I think this will probably be what we talk about for quite some time. But one thing that I'll just mention uh, right from the beginning, to just to set the stage, because it's important not to miss, is that both of those types of opposition um, that, that we bring up, you know, the, from the, the NIMBYs that you might expect and, and from the left, involve protecting the parking requirement often for a reason other than the need for parking, yes. right? Like what the NIMBY wants is just less development. Um, not always. Sometimes there's a concern like, oh, I'm not going to be able to park on my street. But oftentimes it's just like, we don't want to allow these bigger buildings. And what the, the, the sort of progressive concern is, is like, we need this because it's how we get affordable housing. Sure. And so you have this really consequential law on the books that most people agree who think about it is counterproductive, but that but people want to keep it for a reason other than the reason it is nominally there in the zoning code. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think there's an echo of this as far as maybe a long-standing policy as far as, like, how do we create affordable housing, which is you downzone not so much because you want the downzoning and or you create a very... Uh, restrictive permitting process and then you use both the low densities or the permitting process to say well on a project by project basis you're going to give us concessions to get anything you want and i think it's perhaps even more you know egregious here because people can i think at least still make the case that oh we actually do want the low you know low density we like it or we like the architectural review and, and blah 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 but in the case of the minimum parking requirements, it's very interesting. These same groups, they don't even really defend the law as a law. They don't like the regulation. They don't even attempt to say this is good. Uh, but there is still, it is that, that same thing. You, you, you know, calling it pretextual planning, the idea there's a pretext here. They really want a bad regulation for a secondary purpose. And I guess just in general, like, well, you know, if it works, it works. But I, I think yeah, the takeaway that you is, you know, you're a co-author on a letter uh, basically to this original letter. One takeaway is it doesn't work that well. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of issues going on here that that are that are problematic. And I think, you know, we've sort of in many ways, we've as you as you've alluded to, uh, we've sort of backed into this pretextual planning that we we put in place a lot of laws, uh, you know, parking requirements really did originally come about because there was this concern that new development, if it didn't have enough parking, we wouldn't be able to park on the street. I mean, it was not a good way to solve that problem, but that was their motivation. And, you know, people, uh, it, there were other motivations for other restrictions on density. And what's happened is the 
that in many cases the, the law became so stringent, right? And, and I, I think it's important to understand that there are instances where cities have set out to strategically zone uh, so that anyone who, who wants to build anything has to come to them, bend the knee a little bit, and engage in this negotiation. That's happened. But I think it's also happened a lot that uh, a city, because zoning just doesn't change that much. And so it's, what's also happened a lot is a city will zone itself to be fairly low density, but then the economy will grow. And, and the pressure uh, on that city will, will outgrow the zoning. And then suddenly you have just, you find yourself in a situation where actually there's a lot of desire to build because a lot of people want to live there. And yet the zoning code doesn't allow anything to pencil out. And so suddenly you find yourself in a situation where, oh, hey, developers are coming to us and they really want some relief. And now we can start to get some stuff that we would like to have without, for instance, raising taxes, going to our, 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 our existing voters and residents and asking for things. And, and I think this is one of those, as is the case in, in many arenas of land use, it's something that, that seems to work well for everyone except people outside the city's borders. Right, it's sort of uh, the existing voters. If you have a situation where a developer will uh, only be able to build if they can come to the city, go through a prolonged negotiation, you know, maybe get a, an exemption from a height limit or a density restriction or a parking requirement, and then build, you know, fifteen percent affordable. You can keep your low density community for the most part. You can feel pretty good about, you know, promoting affordability, quote unquote even though the vast majority of your city is highly unaffordable and and also you personally as an existing voter don't pay anything right it's 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 you're you're volunteering the developer to do your redistribution and what that does is it if you are someone who works i think you know just to put myself in the shoes of some of the opponents of of AB1401 if you're someone who works in advocacy for low income housing you know you might understand that this is not a good system but it's the system you got Right. Yeah. Like this is how you, and so, so you you end up tolerating what I think almost any scholar of public administration would say is a a pretty lousy system, which is that there's a bunch of rules on the books that don't actually mean you know what they're supposed to mean. That like, oh yeah, we have this parking requirement, we have this height limit. It's not there because we really believe buildings should only be thirty feet tall. We really believe that you need this much parking. It's there because we can get some other stuff that isn't written down anywhere if we bargain this away. And just if you go by the basic precept that, that rules should be sort of transparent and predictable, that's undermining that. And I think now I'm, I'm taking a long time to answer your question, but uh, now you get to this point where like, well, maybe you could stomach all of that, right? A violation of all these precepts of good governance and everything, nothing's perfect. If in fact, what it was getting you was a lot of affordable housing. And, and I think the, the issue that myself and some of the other people who are really big proponents of these bills kept trying to bring up is that like it doesn't. It just doesn't get you that much affordable housing. And, and we, I mean, we can talk about that, too, if you like. It's, it's, there, there's, a, there's a simple the simple breakdown, right, is that if you look at the state density bonus law in general, the entire law, um, it's just not used very much, right? Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's used, you know, more than a lot of other affordable housing mechanisms because, but that's not saying much in the United States. And I forget the exact numbers, but I, I think it's like two thirds of cities in the state, it's never used at all. And then in the places where it is used, the developer does not primarily use the parking exemption. 
right? What the developer almost always they almost always takes the the density bonus, as its name implies, the main concession it offers is extra density. You can build more units. That's what the developer almost always goes for. Yeah, in general, it's you know, it's it's basically two different systems of kind of trade offs at the same time, which is you know, I'd say to to master it sounds difficult at best. But yes, you're, you're you have density bonuses, then also less parking bonuses, and you know, as as the letter points out, just based on the data, uh, people just would much 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 rather use the density bonus. They use this like pretty much max it out, and what. The thing is, it's not only two different options, they feed into each other. Because when you're using a density bonus, then you have to deal with, well, do I have to, you know, park it now? And this is, it certainly makes it more complicated than if you have just one nice lever that you can hopefully try to maximize affordable housing with. That's right. And I think, you know, again, it's always <laughs> difficult, I think, for all of us who are human, but but important to sort of really put yourself in the shoes of people who are coming at you with objections. And it's understandable in part. I think it, it's not understandable anymore because I think this has really been addressed and addressed, but the, any initial confusion is understandable. Cause on the one hand, you have people like me, you have people like Mott Smith or Don Shoup who for years have been banging on about how hard parking requirements make it to build. And so then it makes sense to say, well, my goodness, reducing parking requirements must be a huge carrot to dangle to developers and so how can you now say that if you were to just abolish the parking requirements, um, that doesn't interfere with the density bonus? And I think um, the way to understand that, which is what we try and lay out in these, these studies, and, and it's borne out by numbers that we looked at, is that if you put yourself in a developer's shoes, the most appealing thing you can always offer to a developer is more units, right? Because the units are the revenue. Yeah. So... So if you say to someone, well, you can build three extra apartments or you can build five fewer parking spaces, the developers say, well, please, you know, extra apartments, because that's what I sell. Sometimes fewer parking spaces are going to be really important to me. But I always have to weigh that against the fact that in many parts of California, people want parking. Right. And so that's that's an amenity. Right. And so there's a little bit of ambiguity embedded in the idea of being able to reduce parking spaces. And if you look back at the history of the density bonus law, you start to get a sense of how these two things fit together, which is to say the density bonus law was first put into place and it was basically this, you can, and or the logic in the history of it, the initial sort of logic of it is a, a city has to have a law in place where it will trade extra units for uh, affordable housing. And then it, it sort of pretty explicitly said, both in the language of the bill itself and in some of the, the sort of ancillary stuff around it, the conversations around it, that to protect that density, right, to make sure that cities were not making trades that ended up being sort of uh, unfair to the developer, the developer could also take reduced height, reduced setbacks, and reduced parking. And yeah. the reason for that is exactly what you alluded to just a moment ago, which is the prospect, which is a very real prospect that a developer could say, I'm going to set aside 15% of this building as low income affordable in exchange for a 20% uh, bonus on what I can build. And then having signed that deal, realize that the city is going to claw back that extra density through the back door because those new units, those, those bonus units 
have parking attached to them. There's a parking requirement. And because of the parking requirement, he can't fit them on the parcel. Sure. Right. And so, so one way that we sort of put this in, in one of the reports we wrote is that the density is what you go to the market for. That's, that's what you're buying. Um, The, the parking is basically a bigger bag, right? Like you can't, you're, you're, if you get a bonus, you know, I'm, I'm going to use a lame analogy here, but if you get a bonus 10% more apples from the vendor and you can't carry them home, it, who cares, right? And so it's a, it, it basically, what the parking does, and, and this, is, this is in many ways the way parking affects development, which is that oftentimes the developer just puts parking in, right? And, and, and they do it because um, they understand that their likely renters are going to need some, that it's a service that allows them to charge more rent, on and on and on. But once in a while, the, the, the required parking, the, 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 the requirement that says this much parking has to be on this site just really knocks the entire project for a loop. Yeah. Right? It, 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 it would force you to build a second subterranean deck at a cost of you know, a couple million dollars. It would, it just, or it precludes another, an entire floor of dwellings or things like that. We kind of imagine a big mega project, like, oh, you're going to manage one way or the other, you can put extra, but like, if it's a small project, it's just like, oh, you're never going to make this work. That's right. And so, so I think there's a, one way of thinking about this is that there's a much more predictable appeal and relationship with sort of just getting extra density, right? Like you're talking to a developer, hey, the zoning says you can build 10 units. What if we said you could build 12? Yeah, that's great. If you said to a developer, the zoning says you need to have 20 parking spaces. What if we said you could build 18? There, there could be situations where like the guy's like, yeah, that's the difference I need. And there could be situations where they're like, no, I mean, I have, if I'm building 18, I got to build 20. That's just the way that the layout of the site is. Taking away two doesn't matter. So here's a, here's a question I have just in general. And this kind of goes to maybe some, yeah. like one of the objections I hear, uh, which I, I seems to be not borne by the data, but is just there's a lot of conservatism across the board but with the developers, but especially finance, you know, the banks that are getting the developers, you know, uh, money to work with, which is just if you they want to have things which are pretty much normal and like adding extra units. It's like, of like, of course, that's what people do. Whereas if you have an innovative underparked structure, banks get scared. That's at least one argument I hear. Which kind of implies that, like, well, you know, at the very least, you know, you can get rid of minimum parking requirements to at least avoid frictions for no good reason. But it it's probably not going to flip a switch in any real way, you know, as far as there's going to be a lot of inertia. You know, maybe in different parts of town, especially, it's going to be a, a difference. But it, it, one implication is, you know, this is a low-hanging fruit, but... If you really want to have a transformative parking uh, policy, you're going to have to, you know, maybe use more uh, interventionist things than just uh, reducing minimums. That's right. And I think this sometimes this discussion gets this is where this discussion gets a little bit confused um, because it's where an argument about what removing requirements will do for parking, you know, parking policy or transportation policy, a lot of as well as what it would do vis-a-vis value capture, right? And so there's no question. So just to, you know, start from the top, minimum parking requirements, harmful policy, Um, pretty dumb. uh, You know, it it sort of distorts urban design, uh, very large subsidy to vehicle ownership and therefore to driving. Often 
impedes density, impedes walkability, and so forth. You can call you can call it like a, a, a you know a, you know a, a miss you know you can call it overregulation or a misdesign, but really, like ultimately, it's the only way to really get cars to work. Because I, I think like if you made cars work, if if like this never existed, you know, then you either have to make existing resources work, you know, on street parking, or right. build mm-hmm. a lot of parking garages, public expense. And like I think down the line, I think you you would never see the history in which we would have put public money into garages at the same magnitude as we can just you know put it on to yeah. these private interests. That's right. I mean, I think the the expectation that led to the construction of massive downtown parking garages was bred by uh, the regulation that created parking everywhere else, right? Because otherwise you would never drive into a CBD and be like, well, why why can't I just park really easily? So yeah. there, the way, it's not a huge exaggeration to say that the way a lot of urban America and suburban America looks right now is the product of these rules. And it is fair to say that if you were to just remove them, um, of course you wouldn't get this overnight shift away from car-based development and car culture. And uh, in part, that's because, you know, there's, there's just, there's a lot of endogeneity in, in urban development, right? Say that, you know, if you are in an area where everything is designed for automobiles and you come along to build your, your next incremental dwelling, you as a profit maximizing developer would be pretty silly to just be like, no parking, right? Yeah. Unless you can eat into, if there's abundant street parking, you can kind of free ride yeah. on that. But that's usually not the case unless you're kind of, you know, in certain environments. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and it's a, it's, <laughs> it's certainly a suboptimal to just be like giving away the street parking too. So <laughs> Yes, exactly. Uh, and there's endogeneity in the lending as well, as you mentioned, which is to say that, you know, a, a risk averse lender feels better when the application in front of them looks like. The, the past 20 applications that ended up turning a profit. And if one big difference is uh, that you don't have uh, off-street parking, you're, you're going to raise some alarms. And I think that's why in areas where parking has been deregulated in downtown Los Angeles in the late 90s, you know, with the adaptive reuse ordinance is a good example of this. Uh, what you saw the first few years was people um, really putting together a lot of non, non-traditional, non-conventional financing at first, private equity and, and different tax credits and so forth. And then... Once those apartments, once it was started selling and selling at very high rates and and there was a demonstration that this actually worked, bigger banks got in. Yeah, banks pay attention to Los Angeles, too. If this was some small town doing it or like some minor city, I I think they could probably be ignored for much longer by finance instruments. Right. And then I think what you see in a place like Portland, New York, parts of downtown Boston that have gone further um, and said, you know, well, in, in these areas, there's going to be a parking maximum. Um, I think it's, you know, it's fair to have discussions about, you know, binding parking maximums and whether we should have them. Uh, but certainly people are willing to lend for building in those areas. And, and I think there's reason to think that what that does is it tells the lender, yes, you know, this building is not going to have something you're accustomed to seeing, which is like a big parking podium or something. However, uh, it will not be at a competitive disadvantage because that's what every that's the constraint everyone's building at. And so they yep. could serve a purpose in that regard. Now, the thing about that is that all of that is a completely reasonable discussion to have, and we should be doing more research on what happens. It's immaterial to the question of value capture. Sure. Right. I mean, it's like, so, you know, and I think sometimes in the heat of sort of arguments about bills and so forth, you, you will find someone saying, you know, 
sort of seamlessly switching from, well, we need this to, because it's an inducement for uh, affordable housing. And then if someone like me says, well, if you look at the data, you know, these big projects that are being built right now that do density bonus, they don't take the parking, right? What they take is the density. And then someone from, you know, I'm going to pick on the Western Center, but from someplace like that, we'll say in return, um, we'll say in return, well, then, uh, well, then, well, then why get rid of the parking requirements at all? It's like, no, no, no. (laughs) Because from my perspective, uh, we weren't getting rid of parking requirements because we don't like affordable housing, right? We're getting rid of parking requirements because they're a bad law, right? And, And so it's not logical to introduce the objection. If I say we should get rid of parking requirements, they like are bad for our climate goals and affordability and everything else. And you say, I need them as a carrot for affordable housing. And I say in return, well, the record shows that doesn't work that well. You can't sort of draw this circle and then be like, well, then why get rid of them at all? You know, because all the existing problems are still there. Yeah. People were comparing like, it's like, would you do this if you're like lead abatement? Don't use lead pipes. Yeah. Would you would you create the same stink of like, oh, you're making a change without maximizing it? For It's like, no, it's simply good to not have lead in your pipes. Uh, but I mean, I think just back to the overall value capture paradigm, mm-hmm. like it's like it's, it's kind of a big question. Like, where do you find money to subsidize units and so on? And like, you know, you know, in perhaps in you know you say oh you just would tax it you get money you spend it it's like great you know that'd be fine unfortunately there's difficult politics so people find more abstruse tricks and one of the tricks is i mean where is the value to be captured you know and it is certainly in urban centers there is a huge amount of value you know held by landowners and you know Again, you could tax that, uh, but instead there is kind of an idea like, well, when you develop upon it, you're tapping into this land value. Uh, and certainly, if you're a longtime land banker or something, you're actually tapping right. into the value, and you can, you know, essentially get concessions out of this, you know, this uh, windfall. And I mean, that's that's well and good, but it is very interesting to say that you only tap into that value held by the parcels when things change, when things are developed, as opposed to any sort of thing to get the value capture from incumbency, stasis, the status quo, etc. It's very limited, obviously, and I think that people don't really understand, like, when you have the, like, the Western Center, etc., value capture paradigm, it is inherently a conservative just anti-progress in any sort of way because that's the only way they know to get value capture is by opposing change. Yeah, or, or attaching riders to change or something like that, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, like we, yeah, you only mean, change with... Yeah. If you if you want it, you want it, you know, at the right proportion that you get enough of the right kind of change, but you are able to scoop out of it and get stuff. And it's like, okay, if you can manage that, very well and good but i think you know certainly the way we regulate and administer our city land use process and you know parking process and everything it really indicates that we're not doing a good job developing at scale to to serve needs right and when you when you think about you know it's also conservative in the sense that it imagines a very austere world where the government doesn't spend a lot. The government is quite small, uh, where very important services that we would associate normally with the state are actually uh, carried out by a, a small and, and, and frankly kind of uninterested part of the private sector, right? That someone who went into business to be a market rate developer is now gonna 
you know, uh, on the side, right, and, and reluctantly um, carry out a welfare state mission uh, by building and, and, and overseeing some affordable housing. And this is, no, this is the sort of thing we would do normally with things that we just don't think are very important, yeah. right? A lot of value capture ends up being, you know, not all of it, but a lot of it ends up being inclusionary zone, right? It's just basically, you're, if you build something, um, we're going to capture some of that uh, value uh, in the form of some affordable housing, and, you know, and if we don't do that again, you know, we're, we're just giving away density and not, not getting anything in return. And I think there's, there's two ways to look at, well, probably more than two, but there's, off the top of my head, there's two ways to look at that that demonstrates sort of its problem. Um, one is that if you are, and I imagine most listeners are, if you are a Georgist, right, you, you recognize immediately that this is the antithesis of the original conception of value capture, right, which is that Henry George said, you know, what we should have is a, is a universal tax on the value of land. Uh, and what inclusionary zoning is, uh, is a, it's a selective tax on improvements. Some, some development on land is going to be taxed. Um, but if you just leave your land fallow or you don't change it or anything like that, even though its value is rising, you know, and, and, and rising in a way that is totally divorced from any work or effort you as the landowner put in, we, we leave you alone. And if you're not a Georgist, uh, I think the way to see that this is, is not really that effective is just to step back and say, well, if we have a housing shortage and someone shows up and says, I would like to build some housing, it seems hard to argue that letting them do that doesn't give you anything, right? Because the city needs housing. Yeah. Here's someone who's showing up and said, you don't have to do anything at all. I'm just going to build it. This thing that you keep saying you desperately need. And, and so for the city to then turn around and say, whoa, 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 you know, but like, who's going to provide for the housing that like, you know, who's going to provide for the people who can't afford the housing you're building? So that's a, that's a completely good question, but it's very hard to see why the answer should be the guy who's building the housing, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fair. I mean, there's always the idea that people like developers are predatory in a way they go to a city and I mean this, you know, you could, you could point towards rank gap theory and all sorts of other ways and saying like they go to a neighborhood and they somehow create new value out of thin air. They're a magician who comes into town and somehow gets away by sucking the land value out of the city. And I mean, to to you know be like to tell the truth it's there's a lot of conflation here because a developer is many things uh it is you know it is a builder it's someone who like a, is coordinates the builder if not the builder themselves uh it is the land owner most times and sometimes a long-term landowner you know mm-hmm. it very well could be the case that someone right. buys low sells high and in that case yeah they are essentially sucking value of the city and they are perhaps a long-term landlord which are you know an unappealing figure for other reasons as well but it you know people do fixate on the developer equals builder builder equals someone who kind of sucks value out and it's a bit you know it's a it's never quite the the most logical connection between between how they believe that the value is being extracted yeah i mean i, I think there's a couple of reasons for it um you know it, it, one, it, which is not very satisfying, but it's, you know, Pavel Monkinen and I have a, a paper, a research paper about evil developers. And like, they said on a survey experiment that like just telling someone that a, a developer was going to make profits off a, uh, off a building really ramped up opposition to it, it you know, yeah. changing the building at all. And, you know, we talk about there's a 
you know, this, the prevalence of developers as villains in movies and so forth. But the question is, well, where did that come from? And I think a lot of it is that a developer is just a, a, a very visible agent of change, yeah. uh, you know, in, in, a, in a way that, and they aren't in, when you think about a community changing because of pressures of growth and things like that, um, oftentimes the developer is responsible for a, you know, a minority of that change simply because when you have a, a growing city that's getting much more expensive, often there's just, most of the buildings aren't being redeveloped. But it's much easier to notice uh, a vacant lot turn into a tower than it is to notice that like the kind of nondescript apartment building across the street is now 45% more expensive. And as a result, an entirely different type of person now lives there uh, as they did 10 years before when you moved in. You know, we're very attuned as, as humans to, to notice physical change, to be suspicious of it, and be, to par- be particularly suspicious of it. Uh, in those places we consider very important to us, right? And so that's that's going to make a developer a far more antagonistic figure than like a landlord or, or someone who or someone who's just sitting on a vacant lot. Yeah, it's very people don't really have the same kind of muscles for when scarcity kind of just happens around you. You can talk about you know land scarcity in a city is a bit abstract, but like talk about like droughts inside of you know uh, inside of uh, you know entire state watersheds or something. Like if the idea is you know, water is not what it used to be. I guess no one really hoards water, but like, I think people like, do, do you really need to change your behavior? And I think like, that's maybe a long-term trend. Like, oh, take shorter showers. Don't fill your, you know, don't fill your swimming pool. I mean, really you have to look at the people who actually own the water rights as the real <laughs> people who kind of get away with this instead of saying it's your showers being the problem. But people don't have the same kind of instinct as far as, hey, you know, land isn't a drought, you know, try to tr- try to ration it a bit better. Yeah, and, and I think that you know, one as as we know, one of the things that's so interesting about land and that makes it so unique is that it it really does exist in kind of a fixed supply, and so so it's harder to say like, hey, this year we don't have that much land, right? It, it's when when we when we say things in California about how we don't have much water this year, that, I mean that that reflects a physical reality. Like you go up to the mountains and like yeah. the melt isn't as much, and then the, the rivers are lower, and there is something that's physically changed. The demand for land waxes and wanes, and it really is demand rather than supply. Yeah, right. And and so uh, there's a that's a little bit harder to grasp because if you look around Los Angeles or San Francisco, it is functionally the same patch of earth as it was 30 years ago when things were cheaper. And I think it, it's hard for people to grasp. And I think this is why Georgia's ideas have always been hard to grasp that land because of its fixed supply, it is prone to being hoarded. Um, you yourself, if you own a home, may be a hoarder. Uh, no one likes to think of themselves that way. And that the solution to that, if you are concerned, because we can't make more land, is that it just has to be used more intensively. And that implies uh, possibly a pretty substantial change to um, your immediate habitat, right? And then yeah. humans don't particularly like changes to their immediate habitat. Yeah, people want expectations of having a pretty stable future that they can depend on. And the idea that like their future consumption of, of their own house 
is somehow contingent on others, it makes, I mean, I think it's it's inescapable, but it makes people very upset to consider. Uh, but one, one question, like, I think, you know, maybe that this is kind of one more objection that kind of comes up a lot, mm-hmm. uh, or sometimes maybe, as far as like land and developer giveaways, you know, in this case would be removing parking requirements. And people would say, well, it doesn't even matter in the end, because when you don't have the requirement you know, the developer, this is going to be reflected by the fact they're going to, the land's going to cost more. In, 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 in essentially, like, if they, if they have to build this expensive stuff, the land is going to be cheaper because the residual will be less. In the, you know, in the end, you don't really get the savings. You'll just, you know, the landowner will, will get away with it. Uh, but, but I just in question, I think it's not only by the data. I'm kind of curious if you can talk about maybe what you saw in, in, in like San Diego, but just in general, what do you think about this idea? Like land residual will always defeat you. <laughs> I think land residuals will often defeat individual developers, right? And so that, yeah. that's, I think, one of the misunderstandings about AB 1401 was that, you know, you're going to get rid of this requirement. The developer is going to save money, but then they're not going to pass the savings on to their tenants. And it's yeah. like, first of all, it is true that a developer is not going to voluntarily pass savings on to anyone. If if you were to make a completely spot, you know, it's like, oh, yeah. you right there, you you already are building. By the way, take it easy, you know, just don't yeah. build that parking lot. It's like they're going to. Oh, well, that's just oh, oh, well, how generous of you. Everyone else has to. I don't. But you know, it's not. It doesn't work out that way in aggregate, I guess. And so, and and it is also true, right? That um, especially if if you don't do an upzoning super broadly, uh, that, that the, the, benefit, the benefit of that upzoning will be capitalized into the land. When the developer buys the land, the windfall, they, it will be reflected in the price and the windfall, quote unquote, of that upzoning will go to the landowner. Um, yeah. And But no one or no one surrounding AB 1401, that far as I know, was arguing that the way AB 1401 would be beneficial was that developers would save money and then out of the goodness of their hearts, cut their rents, right? Yeah. What was going to happen is because that land becomes more valuable, because of that, re- the, re- the, re- the sort of functional upzoning that comes from saying you don't have to do the parking anymore, developers can bid more for it, right? And so it's precisely because the developer can pay more is that they can do something that's very important that I think is underappreciated, which is that they can they can pry that parcel of land out of its existing use and turn it into more housing. And the supply of housing rises, and just the fact that the supply of housing rises helps, right? That right now the parking requirements are preventing some parcels from being redeveloped, and they're preventing other parcels from being redeveloped with as many units. And this sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that that people divide, I think mentally they divide the the housing market into sort of, uh, well, it's owner-occupied and rented, right, in, in different ways. But one of the most important ways to divide it is that there's a, there's a market in existing buildings and there's a market in development. And right now, yes, the market in development is lucrative if you can do it, but it's really small relative to the total size of the real estate market, right? I mean, you know, it's like 11, $12 billion in new development in LA County each year to the tune of a trillion dollars in real estate. Yeah. Like that. Um, and you, we look at whether we notice the development and we say, oh my God, those guys are making a bunch of money. And you're like, okay, yeah, some of them are. It's risky. You know, I'm open to many criticisms of developers. They're often 
not all of them, of course, but you can find your examples of, you know, loud mouth, bombastic, sharp elbows, all that stuff. It's all true, right? I mean, at, at best, at best, I mean, I think at yeah. best be able to say like, yeah, they are weird freakish you know optimizers you know who just go in and like try to figure out what can i do to get the most for least and the thing is like that's not a pleasant figure it can be a useful figure if you if you channel them right but it's like you don't have to love them right you don't have to love them you don't have to love developers to realize you need development right because the alternative to development the alternative to to having a market in some where people go in and they take a piece of land and convert it into a, an increase in housing is people just taking the piece of land and selling it for the use of the existing building. And because the demand is high across the board, those people get rich too. The demand in existing buildings in LA County is incredibly lucrative, right? That's, you know, single family homes, million dollars, million five, two million. Um, but those trades do nothing to relieve the housing crisis. Whereas when someone can bid for land and say, okay, I just bought this strip mall. Now it's going to become an apartment building. Well, at least you're getting more supply. And so I think that's the savings come, right, from the fact that more parcels can be taken from the market in existing buildings, moved into the market for redevelopment, and that increases the supply of housing. And if you, my my colleague Shane talks about this a lot, Shane Phillips, and if you upzone enough, right, then you don't even really see uh, that land value capitalization happen as much, right? Uh, and, and so the, the one reason why those of us who would like to see a lot more zoned capacity in, in expensive cities uh, want that is because then you really are more likely to see uh, real price effects that, that manifest when you, when you get new development. Um, but even as it is right now, someone's going to come in uh, it, it, if AB 1401 had passed, they, they, they buy a piece of land that just had one house or that just had a sort of, you know, whatever, a failing hot dog stand or something and turn it into 20 units. Uh, the argument is not that those 20 units are going to be super cheap or that the developer is going to sit there and say, well, I'm so grateful to the city for not having me, you know, uh, build parking. I'm going to give all my, my tenants a discount. No, the argument is that the city has a housing shortage and it's good in the context of a housing shortage uh, to allow someone to turn a failing hot dog stand into 20 housing units. And, and by letting them do that, you have captured value. Do, do you see that in the San Diego, uh, the overall numbers of uh, extra development, but then also you know affordable development, and I hear more affordability, and I'm guessing how is that quantified and you know basically what is the, the trade-off between the parking savings and the you know affordability, as it were? Yeah, so I mean, you're... I think that San Diego's, and just to give the, your listeners some context, San Diego in 2019, 18, and now I even forget, they, they basically did a version of AB 1401. They said that parking requirements were abolished uh, in around transit stations. And what you saw was a huge surge in development of all kinds, right? And I think this is, you know, going back to the, the original debate um, and the objections that some of these progressive groups had, you saw a big uptick in just market rate development. You saw a big uptick, a huge uptick in uh, 100% affordable buildings, right? Because if you're a, a nonprofit developer, a mission-driven developer just builds buildings that are entirely below market rate, uh, the, the, the parking requirements can be a huge burden for you. Um, and so those went up the most. 
But then we also saw a really big increase in mixed income developments, right? And again, a density bonus developments, again, really speaking to this idea that what the parking was doing, what the parking uh, provision of the density bonus law was doing was just allowing someone to use that extra density. It was insurance for that extra density. Yeah, it's interesting because it's it's not just that one lever. It's the fact this one lever is blocking. It's not yeah. like you're just letting them get off, but like it's like we are still doing. I mean, I think the IZ and all this density bonuses are not really the the you know, ideal value capture, but they do something. And if you unleash one, you at least get you know a lot of this value capture getting you know pumped out that you wouldn't have like at all. It just never happens. Yeah, and I think you know it, that's exactly right. That what. What the parking or the height or the setbacks were doing um, in, in the context of that law is that they they functioned as insurance against those provisions of the zoning code coming in and taking away your extra density. And so if you got rid of that section of the zoning code, you were making the density more rather than less appealing, right? And that's what happened in San Diego. And I think it it's really telling if you look at the transit-oriented communities program in Los Angeles, which is a, a kind of supercharged version of the density program. It's, it's city-specific, and again, it's sort of near transit and things like that. You know, the, the developers that build those buildings, they take almost all the density that they can. Yeah. Um, but they, on average, build twice as much parking as they have to. It's still less than, like, if that program didn't exist, what the city would require. And, and I think the fact that they do that, the reason they do that speaks to the limits of inclusionary zoning as a really meaningful policy for promoting affordability, right? Because if you are a, a, a developer in Los Angeles, you buy a piece of land, you know, within a quarter or half mile of a transit station, you want to use TOC. And then as a condition of building, the city says to you, you have to carry X percent, five, 10, whatever, uh, of, of units below market rate uh, on a 55-year covenant. Well, that's basically telling you, is you, you better build an expensive building, right? Yeah. You have to have absolute market-topping rents in the other parts of your building because you are on the hook for doing a 50-year subsidy for a, a proportion of them. And in a city like Los Angeles, that means th these units have to come with parking spaces, right? It's so so you're, the idea that you would move toward a city where, you know, near our transit centers, near our transit stations, we have a lot of development that, that isn't very car oriented, is somewhat upended by a requirement that says, actually, as a condition of building near them, you also have to carry this subsidy. And, and it, it, it shows to a certain extent that that form of value capture, that sort of inclusionary mindset, you know, it has it has a real uh, a built-in speed break. Yeah. Is, at a certain point, you know, it's just not going to pencil anymore. And so, what you're going to have is an equilibrium if it's going to persist, where we build very expensive housing in cities that remain very expensive, and and if we have a small portion of that new housing going to a lucky uh, number of people who are going to get a subsidy. Yeah, it's kind of the, the, the implicit assumption of so many value capture schemes is extreme inequality is taken for granted. 
you are going to have the extra rich and the extra poor, and you can squeeze the extra rich because they're always going to be out there. Probably be more of them. All the time, there's more of them. And only squeeze them, and you will be able to get some for the extra poor, as opposed to a paradigm in which more stuff shifts to kind of the broad middle of kind of, you know, middle class everyday people. And if you capture value from them, you know, certainly it's, there isn't as, they aren't the the money bags, the piggy bank of, you know, everyone imagines these, you know, uh, you know, billionaires and, or even just very high end yuppies, but there is, you know, there is a lot of meat in the middle if you, if you, if you get to it. And we just normally our cities, we don't even address this in, you know, uh, each one doesn't matter as much, but in aggregate, it's a huge amount of, of, of value. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I think there's, and I'm only going to, I'm going to add a, I'm going to restate it a little bit. And then I'm going to add one caveat where I think you might have stated that wrong. I mean, but I think okay. the, we, we accept this, this, we accept a mindset of scarcity, right? We accept a mindset where we're just not going to build that much, right? Like in Los Angeles, for instance, multifamily is going to be allowed on, 25, 30% of our residential land. So we're just not going to have a lot of housing. Um, and so there's always going to be this low level housing crisis. Um, and then we're going to, uh, we're not going to spread the burden of that broadly. Right. And I think this is like, you can zoom this out to kind of macroeconomic discussions about inequality. And I think one of the things people often misunderstand in the United States about, um, the Nordic countries, for instance, and I'd be very happy if we had more of a Nordic model in the U.S. I know I'm in a minority there, but um, is that, you know, the Nordic model is not built on billionaire taxes, right? It's just like the middle class pays a lot in taxes. And, yeah. and as a result, they get a, a state with a lot of capacity to do a lot of things, right? And so it's not like you, you see like Bernie Sanders saying, well, we're going to tax the hell out of Elon Musk. And it's like, well, I'm not going to lose any sleep if you do that. Um, but if you want a Nordic model, you have to tax the hell out of like me, a, a, a sort of fairly well-off college professor. And then I would have less personal consumption and so would a lot of people like me. Um, I'm totally fine with that, uh, but it's a different proposition. And so we don't do, and so in the US in general, we don't do that. And in in our sort of value capture, we don't do that. And I guess the here's the area where I would, I would uh, disagree slightly with you is that we don't squeeze the rich. Yeah, to be completely clear, we don't. But I think the model is, it's like that is the only place we're going to find those veins. Right. But I think that what I would, what I often say to people who propose value capture is that if you really want to squeeze the rich, um, they are living in single family homes. Right? Yeah. And, that, and those developments are exempt from value capture. First of all, most of them are already built, but like you... There's no inclusionary attached to a single family home. Step outside New York City and in every urban area in the country, the, 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 where the rich people live is in detached single family homes. And so it's, again, these new sort of apartment developments, they look very fancy and they're very visible. And the people who in them, they aren't poor. Right. They're, they, they are yuppies like they're, you know, they're the first year associate at the law firm and things like that. So nobody should worry that they're not feeding themselves. But the partner at the law firm is often a single family home. And it's, yeah. I, I say this a lot, but it's like every once in a while, the L.A. Times runs a, a, a feature on like the, the crazy new developments in the apartments in downtown and all the things they have. And it's this building has a shared dog park and this building has a, a shared gym and. It's like, well, yeah, the, the, 
okay, that's pretty nice. Um, but I have friends who live in single family homes and that their backyard is a private dog park and they've got a Peloton in the basement and that's a private gym. And, and the thing that we have to remember, in addition to like the fact that that's where the wealth is, is that if we're serious about climate policy, we need to have more people who make my kind of money and more comfortable with the idea of vertical living. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is that that means our vertical buildings are going to have to be a little nicer. It's very interesting. I mean, if you if you talk about where we you know align into part to what degree with the Nordic you know model or just kind of the idea of maybe just kind of broad based sharing, yeah, I, I think we certainly fall short as far as you know kind of income progression, you know, compression, and just like you know how much we you know tax you know the upper middle class. But at least there is at least some appetite. If you make more than you know uh, six figures, you expect high marginal rates or higher you know, yeah. high by American standards, but wealth taxes, you know, as far as assets being held, you know, how much they are being uh, captured, you know, just across the board of, you know, even like we of course are constrained by, you know, Prop 13 about, you know, wealth taxes for ad valorem, but long-term holders of assets, that's considered right. just off the table. It's like, oh, it may be worth three million dollars but let's not even consider that as wealth and then top of it too like not even long i mean there's a like pastoralist mindset like oh that's not that's only use value and people are like well you still can sell it i'm pretty sure it's financialized but even redeveloping for single family homes you know it's Mm -hmm. insane like it's just crazy to me we don't do more for existing track development and then especially within our cities people who redevelop into single family homes like that is people make a lot of money in that. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, there's, look, there's legitimate, there are legitimate problems taxing wealth. It's, it's harder, you know, it's always easier to, to, to tax a flow. It's the, that's easier to measure and so forth. All of that's true. Um, and, you know, look, I'm <laughs> not a conservative, but I will acknowledge that we live in the United States and people have problems with high income tax rates. They, they object to them. They, they talk about their effort and this and that, and I, I don't agree with them, but it's there. And I think that's, but this is an area where getting toward a tax on land value is so important, right? Because it, no one, no one can say it was really their effort, right? It's, just, you know, it's a, this, like that, that precept is true. You, you, yes, your, your house in the Fairfax district has doubled in value and it's not because you revived the Fairfax district all by yourself. Like you're an impressive person, but like you didn't do that. And we both know that if you picked up that house um, and dropped it in California city, its value would plummet. Yeah. And, and so, and then you can say, I'm a high wealth, low income person. I couldn't possibly pay that. Or you could say, how would you possibly value it or something like that? But I think that's the beauty of um, a real estate transfer tax is that it is it is the moment when that property is sold, you have converted wealth to income, right? And then the person by definition has the ability to pay it. Uh, you have a revelation mechanism that shows the value, right? And so it's not it's not perfect. So, so I've heard people claim, I've heard people claim upon sale, they are house rich and cash poor. It's like, you've just sold it. You have yeah, the no. cash in your hand. You're holding a bag of cash. You're okay. not cash poor. Yeah, absolutely wrong. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. um, absolutely untrue. And, uh, and so, and so some, and you know, we don't have to be crazy. You don't have to c- confiscate the whole thing, but it's just like, that's where you capture value. Yeah. Right? 
if you are concerned about value, um, that's where you would capture it. And of course, there, you would have to work out some details. You know, there's there's different things. You wouldn't want it to deter development. You wouldn't want it to uh, prevent a sale to someone who's going to build 20 units of new housing or something. But that's not most sales, right? And yeah. I mean, there's going to be dead loss of people who like, well, if I don't get the capital gains, I'll just hold on to my house around a couple of decades. And like, you have to deal with that. And I, it's, a, it's a tough, tough thing to strike. Yeah, uh, and 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 I think, but but you have to weigh that against the status quo, right? Yeah, it's just um, you know m- massive windfalls it, in other ways for those people, and also you have to just think about um, how many people would that really be? You know, the tip the typical sale of a house really is I'm moving, I'm getting married, I'm whatever, and it, it, the people really don't have much choice but to sell their property usually. Yeah, and the question is like it's it's just interesting politics to me that like for like in recent San Jose had an exemption of 2.5 million for transfer taxes. Uh, San Francisco was at 5 million. I believe yeah. LA they're proposing a 5 million thing. Five million, the one yeah. is you can make a capital gains, which I think makes it easier because it's not just the property value. If you if you buy for, you know, 3 sell for 4 as opposed to it's just all windfall. And I, I mean, of course, people are very attached. Like, no, that's my money. I earned that. And I don't know. It's tricky. Yeah. I mean, well, and I think these, these very high numbers go back to this idea that it's, um, you know, so it's, it's someone, it's the rich's responsibility and the rich is someone who has more than me. Right. Uh, yeah. And I think it's just, it's very strange to hear, hear people say, you know, on the one hand, I'm deeply concerned about inequality and housing affordability and so forth. It's like, well, okay, well, how about a transfer tax? And, and so if you, it's progressive, it starts, you know, like, gosh, starts at a million dollars and you have to pay a portion of it. And and they, you know, well, no, it's, it's crazy. You know what, how could I, it's like that objection. I mean, I understand how it comes about because we are, we're sort of self-justifying creatures, but like what you're saying is that you have this problem and the problem is that you hold this multi-million dollar asset. In, 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 a, in, a, in a region in which everything is scarce and you know yeah. that like, yeah, it's, it's not like you, like the windfall is shared by everybody. So everything seems like, well, this is just natural at this point, right. you know? And it's just, you know, you want to have them explain that problem to someone crowded into an apartment building in, in the Pico Union neighborhood. No, 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 explain. Talk, talk about how this million dollar asset is making your life very difficult. Um, and I think that is this, this people don't realize the connection between sort of the, the owner occupied market and the renter occupied market, but it's just, you know, this, this is a real thing. So I have a few questions before we wrap up here. Just like, yeah. I, I've got my own model of like, how do we get out of the mess of parking? Mm-hmm. And my model is more or less housing is coming online you know, largely where we're doing some stuff at the local level, but largely like Rena is finally working. We're mandating housing. Housing elements is going to be fun for a bit. And what happens at that point? And I think, you know, some places, you know, you either have to park the people in the new houses or you're eating into existing stock. And if you get minimum parking, you know, fixed, then what, what do you have? You either have under parked people who are being able to live without a car or it goes on to current excess resources like in like places like palo alto they still depend in so many places on street parking and like their opposition to sb50 is like we won't be able to hold this on street parking and i mean to me the obvious thing is well that's very babyish of you like you have a resource here you have this the street parking 
and you can't expect it to last forever. You need to manage it. Mm -hmm. And there is no appetite to manage it. And they, they slowly move into a residential parking program, for instance. Right. The residential parking program, they give it away for a, a pittance uh, to people. But then on top of it, it's like, I can get that. You need to uh, grease the wheels for incumbents. But they are very attached to saying new people in the future must also be able to get into the residential parking program. And I'm, I'm, I, I say to people often, why? You know? These are hypothetical people in the future. <laughs> like, you know, why don't you throw them under the bus? You know, you don't need to have them parked, you know, in, in the future. You know, it, it's just very weird. Like, that's the one place I see solidarity is people uh, hoping that future people get parking. As I, as I you know, we just, and I, you wrote you wrote a bit about like kind of the transitional gains trap, uh, yeah. you know, San, San Francisco and so on. And I just think it's, you know, just very interesting in like how this is pitched, how this is sold, on how we can get from here to there. How can you how can you deal with with allocating scarce parking space? That's right. So I mean, one, I, I, there's a couple a couple of just broad observations before we get to that particular uh, point. You know, the process I do think has momentum behind it. Um, I think it's it's it has been slow and it will be slow. But when I first got into graduate school, um, you know the Don Shoup was a, a lonely voice, right? And then uh, he, the, you know, yeah, I still remember being in grad school and I, I shared an apartment with a buddy of mine. And one morning I was explaining the the argument, you know, the sort of basic argument against minimum parking requirements and, and excessive free parking to his girlfriend. And she got like, like viscerally angry with me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, so that's the way it was. It was just like, it was not just unheard of, but like you were, you were really, uh, a bad person for suggesting this stuff, and, and so we a lot of progress has been made. And I think as these pressures come along, we're we're going to continue to make progress. Your your diagnosis of the Palo Alto situation, I think, is absolutely correct. I mean, what one thing parking requirements have done is that they have perpetuated and enabled um, an, an incompetence. Uh, and local government in dealing with an incredibly valuable resource, which is the land that is their streets, which is often the single largest um, piece of land in the city. And it's completely owned by the government. It's incredibly valuable. And if we want to talk about value capture, it's crazy for a city government to say, oh, you know, I'm really concerned about like, we're not getting value off this development. Meanwhile, like, you know, one of the, the largest single land uses under their jurisdiction that they own, they give away. Right. We should be capturing that value. We should be capturing with some some sort of pricing mechanism. And if you do that, um, it demands a certain professionalism in government. It demands a commitment to a high quality service. It demands that the government sort of rise to uh, the standards that, that many liberals like myself want our government to have. And the, the, the municipal fragmentation, all these tiny little places. Yeah, I think it, it certainly doesn't bode well for them to grow this competence. Well, but but I think you know the beautiful thing about parking, street parking, is that so much of it is so local. You know, I mean, it's just like yeah, like you're a tiny little city, but people don't want to park five miles away; they want your street parking, and so charge for it. You know, you don't have to yeah. park excessively, but you can charge its value, and and yet it will be a better service because of it. You can do it with meters, you can do it with permits. The the particular in thing that you're talking about um, with with the future people. And I wouldn't even, I know you were joking, but like, it's not even throwing people under the bus in the future. It's just this idea that if they arrive knowing ahead of time 
that they can't have parking, they're going to self-select and people who parking isn't that important to are going to show up. And so you can actually, it's you're not throwing them under the bus. You're sort of using some time substitution to maximize utility, right? That the people who don't need parking will go there. Uh, yeah, and it's, you can imagine if you like, if it's the middle of nowhere, yeah, it's like there are places that are not transit ready, but like there are people who are marginal transit users. Some yeah. people could drive. They will walk the extra two blocks to get to a bus stop, you know, and they right. will manage. I mean, and, that's the thing. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I'm that marginal. Like when I went to college for, for seven years in grad school and so on, like I didn't get a car just because like it was a pretty minor fee like 150 bucks a year it's like oh screw that yeah i'll take the bus everywhere and then as soon as i got free street parking in a place where like there was no transit connectivity i'm like oh i have to that those days are over you know it, it's like, absolutely yeah. no and 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 you can just imagine the similar thing happening where you know someone is choosing an apartment or choosing a house um and and the agent says to them just so you know like the, you, the new residents can't park on the street, right? They can't get the, the permit. Um, and so the person who's determined to drive everywhere is going to say, well, it turns out this is not my dream house. And the person who takes the bus anyway is going to say, that's fine, whatever. Yeah. Right. And then so like no harm, no foul, because it it's very different from you moved in, you know, with your four cars and then suddenly you found out you couldn't park on the street. Uh, the, the main obstacle to that, uh, is that one of the last things she did as attorney general, uh, Kamala Harris wrote an opinion saying you couldn't bar new residents from participating in a permit program. Okay. I heard you say this on the UCLA uh, yeah. housing podcast. And like you said, like it may be illegal. And I was actually going to ask you what that's all about. Is this what this whole thing is? That is that thing. And um, yeah. now I am not an attorney. So like, you know, if some listeners like, I bet that could be challenged, like no argument, please challenge it. Um, but, but my understanding is that she wrote, she issued that opinion in response to something that came up somewhere in California. Uh, it has not been challenged or overturned in any way. And so my understanding caveat again, that I'm not an attorney is that right now the functional law, uh, as it applies to parking permits in California is that you cannot do something quite sensible, um, and say we, you know, these exist right now, but for new residents, they don't. So, and that's too bad. That, that would be so California if all the ways we 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 yeah. we uh, basically give handouts to incumbents. Right. The one way you can't is is parking. Got with you. You're never going to afford a home here, but if you do, you can park on the street. Um, the so so I do think, and you know, it's too bad because obviously it's not an ideal situation to have, you know, this sort of incumbent newcomer, but it, it is, it's the runway to a good transition, right. To, to moving toward, because eventually you could imagine a situation where eventually everything turns over. There's no initial, original residence. And then you can go in with whatever, you know, actually having permits that are auctioned or, or something like that, where the city um, does in fact capture the value that needs and in capturing that value uh, it, it reduces a lot of externalities associated with vehicle travel. It, it provides a better service. It, it drives me crazy that what we call value capture serves mostly as, you know, it, it delivers very few of the benefits it's supposed to, and it's a tax on this thing that we need, which is, uh, which is more housing production. And meanwhile, the cities are sitting on this incredibly valuable land. That's the result of that. That's the, the source of tremendous negative externalities in the form of excess vehicle travel, and they won't touch it. Uh, it's just totally backwards. 
it's very interesting like, when you're talking about uh, San Francisco extending traffic, like extending parking meters, and how it got backlash. The backlash, your your diagnosis is. It's because people interpret it as you need revenue as opposed to no yeah. taxes are a service fee in which you are administering scarce resources, right. which is that's a cousin to the constant refrain, you know, basically gas taxes, parking fees, congestion pricing is regressive. It's like, no, sorry, like regressivity is about revenue features. If it is a service fee, you could say that it sucks that people don't have enough money to pay the service fee. You're, you're right. But it is, I think, wrong to ever use the word regressive in that sense because it, it has the frame of this is because we need that money, and that's not the, that's not really why we're doing it. That's right. I mean, it's sort of a, and I think you're you're fighting an uphill battle there. I, I agree with you 100. percent And I, um, you know, William Fischel is the scholar of zoning. It, I remember he wrote something. He's a very eloquent guy. To say that you know, uh, in some respects, uh, zoning in a perfectly zoned city is. Uh, uh, taxes in a perfectly zoned city, the property tax is regressive, but it's it's meaningless if you believe that those taxes are just fees for service, right? It's no yeah. more meaningful to call that regressive uh, than to say, you know, me to walk into the grocery store and be like, what, everybody pays the same price for milk? It's regressive. And I think yeah. the, the what I like to say in response to that is I don't get into the discussion about what regressive means. I just say, look, that doesn't have to make it unfair, right? That That, you know, this is a this is a problem that comes with its own built-in solution, which is that there's revenue there. So if you're really concerned that some people aren't going to be able to afford this, let's use some of that revenue to take care of it. But I do think it's a fine balance to walk when you're pushing these policies because everybody wants money, right? Yeah. So it's hard not to say, look, this is a way you can raise money. Um, but the risk of that, of course, is that you you downplay what's unique about it. Right. The, the, it, the unique thing about parking pricing or congestion pricing is not that you can raise money. Right. The unique yeah. thing is that you can actually make these these services work well. Um, and then the money's a bonus. I, I just wonder in general, like if service fee and dividend, people always say like this is perfect politics. And I believe like it certainly seems on paper like it's perfect politics. But then again, I, I don't think you see service fee plus dividend anywhere, uh, you know, because it would solve a lot of these intractable issues. Yeah, I, I think there's, you know, I, I think that that's right, you know, and it's certainly it's something I strongly believe in, right? It's just like, you know, people talk about converting to a road charge in California and getting rid of the gas tax. And I say, well, no, I mean, we should tax gasoline. Burning gasoline is very hard. You could just rebate 100% of your gas tax revenue, right? Yeah. But, but like, we should, there should still be a cost attached to burning gas because of all the, you know, negative consequences it has Re rebate non ga ga gas users for the gas tax yeah. others are paying exactly that's a perfect yeah right yeah per capita a per household you know rebate of some sort um the, the the average californian would come out ahead you know beautiful right you'd, you'd encourage um electric vehicles etc etc uh but you know this sort of the, the, the sort of myopic focus on revenue just leads people to say you know in caltrans and other places well the gas tax is going to go away and we'll just have a VMT charge. So, well, no, because, you know, our gas tax does something that's actually, you know, it's if I understand if you're at Caltrans, the gas tax is very important as a revenue stream because it's your revenue, but it has much more important roles to play because burning gasoline causes a lot of problems. VMT as a use you know, use charge for electric as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Sure. But I, I think having a 
disproportionate impact on gasoline usage is just sensible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think the one last thing I would say to that is that, you know, dude, now we're just talking about <laughs> the transportation, but, you know, if you got rid of the gas tax, I mean, and, you know, uh, James Sully at Berkeley has a, a very interesting paper about this that I find very persuasive. If you got rid of the gas tax entirely um, and then put in place a VMT charge, you know, you, you should probably exempt electric vehicles, right? Because otherwise you're just going to delay the adoption of electric vehicles because sure. of that implied subsidy to internal combustion and i think these are the typical thing a social scientist says right like we if you don't think carefully about all these trade-offs um and just kind of make policy based on your gut then you get really bad outcomes and to draw a circle there i think that's the story of inclusionary zoning like it, it just seems like oh of course the developers are rich and rich people live in these rich apartments and so let's make them build the affordable housing it's like it just doesn't you know the track record here is really not very good. Yeah, I mean, in, you know, inclusionary zoning as well as, you know, even density bonuses, those are yeah. also pretextual uh, planning in a certain oh, yeah. way. Because you are saying, you are saying we want, you know, less density when really you don't. Right. But it is, it's a, it's a gambit. And, but also is if you do it right, it's a mechanism you can use. I believe, you know, for example, like when you have a public agency has a extra right to develop, that's kind of a nice little way to like you know through a back channel get money to a to a transit agency but mm-hmm. you know it's it is dishonest and i i mean i would much rather we move towards honest you know t- policy but i guess we we're kind of unfortunately stuck doing all these tricks yeah i mean i think that you know uh, if you're not going to have an attitude and a policy that just encourages um basically an abundance of housing then you have signed yourself up for uh, the world of these trade-offs and these strange negotiations and all the costs and all the sort of lack of transparency that entails. Uh, but because we are not prepared politically to just say, you know what, like there should just be a lot more places to live all over yeah. the place. Um, that's that's what we have to do. And I think again, if if you came up in that environment, if you fought policy battles in that environment, if you have won some battles in that environment and seen some affordable housing get built, like I do understand the reluctance to part with those tools, but I don't think that excuses you from zooming out and saying, you know what, like we're losing the war here. Like we have to move toward an area where we just have a lot more because we have more people, we have more need, um, there's more pressure and we can't just be sort of trying to keep this this pie very small and dividing it up different ways it has to get bigger so just in closing ab 1401 let's assume you know it's going to get some feet again in some sort of way uh you know are you are you optimistic that uh you know kind of you convinced the apa you know do you think do you think other people are gonna get on board i i feel like we 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 dragged the most begrudging change of mind out of the apa uh imaginable but but I, I do give them great credit for changing their mind. Um, and, and more of us should be willing to change our mind. And so I'll, I'll power to them for that. Um, you know, I don't know because the way this went down, you could interpret it as, uh, as promising or not promising. But basically you had one, you know, fairly well-known anti-housing sort of anti, anti-redistribution uh, assembly member um, kill it with his unilateral ability 
And so the one it's, hand, it's worth mentioning that like yeah. the the letter to the assembly didn't matter. O- the only right. people voted for it were the arch GOP folks. Right. You know, for the most part, it, like it's like okay, you did not win the equity argument. People ignored you. And but the thing is, Portentino being allowed to by the president of the Senate. So it's all sorts of weird palace intrigue yeah. uh, as well. But and so, yeah, and I think that's that's right. And I think he, he dressed up a little bit like on Twitter. <laughs> but then he, but then he said, oh, I'm doing yeah. it because I believe in equity. It's like, no, yeah, yeah OK, I believe you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I believe in equity from, you know, the my, the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains and my, you know. Yeah. So, so I guess you could say on the one hand, this thing went down just because one person blocked it and they won't be there forever. On the other hand, as you said, we have a system where one person can block things for reasons that might involve a general NIMBY predilection, a a personal animosity within Sacramento we don't know about, right? I mean, who knows? Um, It sounds like junior high, just a bunch of people, like it's clicks and I don't know. Yeah, and like, again, I don't pretend to understand why that, that senator did what he did, but certainly the fact that you have you know, one person can go ahead and kill something if the one person above them lets them do it, raises junior high vibes, right? And so yeah. that's not that encouraging. Yeah, but I, I hope the war of ideas, everything matters. If Portentino has to be honest, like, oh, I'm just a car lover, that's so much better in my mind than him saying, oh, the Western Center, I just believe in their equity argument so much. It's like, okay, okay, okay. Uh, oh, yeah, so just in closing, uh, I mean, you can find, you know, you, you uh, post, you know, stuff you're writing or threads on Twitter, but just in general, like, where, where, where yeah, just tell people where they can check out, check out stuff you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm a, I'm a sort of, not a heavy user of Twitter, but I'm, I'm on there. Um, and then the only other place to find me really would be just uh, on UCLA's website um, where my email address is, is readily available. So anyone who's interested, I'm, we're always happy to be in touch. Myself, my colleagues, um, we're always doing work on this sort of thing. And it's, uh, it's great that, you know, it's the whole department is, is, you know, not only has like nice white papers, but is getting the podcast space. Cause that's, that's where it all really matters. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, podcasts are, are bust really is, is, uh, is the name of the game these days. It's like, <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. So no, we're, uh, we're, we're really happy. The housing voice podcast is I'm an occasional co-host. Um, but we all play a role in kind of planning it out. Shane Phillips is the mastermind of that, um, at the Lewis center. And yeah, um, we, we, we try to be active and engaged. And so we're always, we're always interested in conversations. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much again for making the time to make it here today. Yeah, appreciate the invitation. We have been talking to Michael Manville of UCLA Luskin, all about parking reform, value capture, and more. You can find this episode of the radio show, as well as all previous episodes, at the website, seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Giza Shoe, Stanford 